praise you and thank you for the opportunity to come before you to receive from your word once again. Lord, we do pray for a fresh filling, outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us. Open our eyes and ears. Open our hearts to what it is that you, God, would speak to each of us individually today. And we count on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 4, this week, it begins with a war and it ends with knowing and learning and and asking the Lord for uh, his will to be accomplished in and through our lives. So we see in the first 12 verses of the chapter uh, that's before us, chapter 4, we see that James speaks of three different types of war that we each as Christians battle. We uh, battle a war unfortunately, at times with each other. We battle a war with ourselves, and then we are at war at times with God as well. So with each other, ourselves, and God. But James begins this chapter by asking a question. And the question he asks is found in verse 1. And he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? That's a great question. I don't know. Have you ever asked yourself that question? When you get in an argument with your spouse and it sort of snowballs, do you, have you ever asked, where did this even start from? I mean, it seems like little things add up to something bigger if it's not addressed. And then you forget what the original argument was all about, right? Well, that can happen with us as believers as well. What causes arguments, fights, wars amongst Christians. Now we must remember that this is the church that James is addressing. So apparently this was happening back then as well, that they were arguing in the church. And we see that uh, the church, James writes to them, because they need direction. They need instruction. They need wisdom in this very real and difficult problem in the church, which was wars amongst them. And we face this, of course, we know even today. War begins when one or both persons or people or sides become prideful, in the flesh, jealous, arrogant, we could go on and on, right? Something, selfishness, there is a breakdown somewhere in one or both sides, and then we have an argument, a fight, the flesh, division, strife, all of that. It's interesting, as I began doing a little research about what causes a war, I learned that the cause of World War I was the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in June 21st. Uh, 1914. The cause of World War II was Hitler's attack upon Poland, in um, which France and Britain then responded. It is important. It is reported. Excuse me. That wars, the cause, the root cause of a war, is uh, an ideological change in one or both sides. And so basically what that means, it's when a group of people or a person changes their ideas or somebody challenges their ideas or their visions on something, when it's challenged, when we're challenged. So can you see that I'm bringing this to home here? So just think of you when I speak of this. The University of Hawaii released a study on the causes of war, which reported that war is not necessarily caused by one thing, but many things that add up. 
Some of the causes are opposing interests, change in the balance of power, individual perceptions, disrupted expectations, and a will to conflict. Basically, some just want a good fight, right? Interests, powers, perceptions, expectations, and conflicts. Does this sound familiar? I mean, isn't this what happens in our own homes? In our churches, there is a conflict of interest. There is difference in perception, in expectations, in power. There's a struggle, and some just want a good brawl, right? They just want to fight. Sometimes I would say to my husband, not recently, but way back when, do you really want to fight? I mean, do you want to get out the boxing gloves and just, like, duke it out? (laughs) I mean, like... Sometimes you just want somebody to fight with. Is that not true? That is right. I found these statistics to be very interesting and really very close to home. Would you agree? This is really where wars, fights, arguments, contentions all stem from. When we have conflict in the family, it really normally falls under one of these five or many of them, um, the areas. And when we have issues in the church, it normally stems from these same areas as well. There may be differences in interest. There may be a struggle for power. There may be uh, perceptions for being wrong or being accused, or, or um, one not agreeing with someone else's vision. Expectations may be unreasonable. And for some, as I said, they just like a good fight. Whatever the case may be, the war is very real, and it can be won. It can be won in the home, it can be won in our hearts, and it can be won in the church. And James, praise God, tells us how today. By first identifying the three types of wars that we as believers face in our lives. They are first, war with each other. When we examine some of the early churches, we see that they had their fair share of disagreements. The Corinthian church, for example, was competing with one another in public worship, and they even were suing one another. The Galatian church, they were biting and devouring one another, and Paul had to admonish the Ephesians to cultivate spiritual maturity and unity, and even his beloved church of Philippians in Philippi, the one that he loved so much. Remember the two ladies that were arguing with each other? I mean, he had to even correct them. So I guess this is not a new problem in the church. This is one that has been going on for many, many years. In verse 11, though, we're going to hop around a little bit today. We will cover, cover all the verses, Lord willing. But verse 11, James gives us the remedy for war with each other first. And he says in verse 11, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. As we saw in our five reasons for war, we see here reason number three. The perceptions are wrong. How we perceive, view, think, judge others 
has a direct effect upon our relationship with them. In this particular church that James was pastoring, the people not only couldn't control their tongues, we learned last week, but they couldn't control their perceptions of one another, which then led to them judging one another. It seems as though the two of these perceptions and judging really go hand in hand. How we view others and how we speak of them really goes hand in hand, doesn't it? I mean, think about it for a moment. If you like somebody and you view them in a good way, you're going to probably speak highly of them. But the opposite is true. If we have a problem or we don't like somebody or we don't like the way they look or what they said or how they smiled or we... It's, it's, it's our judgment and our perception really goes hand in hand. That's probably why we got that saying, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, because oftentimes we tend to do that, don't we? And I always tell my kids when they go for their first job interview um, that your first appearance is lasting appearance. We want to make sure that our first appearance with an employer or whoever, it does unfortunately make a lasting appearance, doesn't it? Because we tend to, as humans, judge by what we perceive. If somebody comes in and they're dressed sloppy, we have a perception, don't we? It's just how it works. But only, and we know this, God can judge a man's heart. And we are not in that place of God, and we are not to do that uh, judging. Only God can do that. Verse 12 says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Christians are to speak truth in love. However, we are not to speak evil of one another. We are not to gossip. We are not to have a spirit of criticism to other people. If the truth about a brother or sister in the Lord could harm them, then we are to, as a brother or sister in the Lord, seek to cover them and not expose their faults. We know that Matthew 8 Eight, and then in Matthew 18 also tells us what we're to do, right? If we um, have offended somebody, we're to go directly to that person. But if, Matthew 18 tells us, if we see that our brother or sister is in sin, what are we to do? Expose it to everybody? No, we are to go to that person individually, and we are to seek to restore them and then cover them. That is what we're supposed to do. First Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a what a multitude of sin not one not two but many a multitude of sins however if a brother or sister sins as i said we are to go to them as matthew 18 tells us and we are seek to to seek to restore them and then to cover them we must remember that not only is the church watching us how we act what we say what we do but we have the world that is watching us as well. And they are the first to identify hypocrisy, aren't they, in us as believers? So we need to be mindful that the world is watching us as well. There's no room for us as believers to be judging other believers. That is not our place. Only room for inspecting fruit. And that, the Bible says that we are to be fruit inspectors. But I will say that sometimes we call it inspecting. Really, what is it? It's judging. 
we're really good at doing that, aren't we? We're really good at a few things. Inspecting when we're judging and sharing when we should be praying, right? So we, we fall prey unto this. We do this often. So this today is... Um, I feel just a good reminder for us of those things that we can sort of, those categories, those, those little slippery slopes that we can fall into. We can fall into gossip and call it sharing. We can fall into judging and call it inspecting. And so we need to be mindful of um, what exactly we're doing. And you know, the best thing to do is just to be quiet and pray, right? Not to say anything and just to pray. If we could discipline ourselves to do that, we would make so much more, um, uh, you know, we'd, we'd take ground, we'd, we'd make a bigger impact if we would just be quiet and we would just pray. I think the older you get, the more you learn to do this. We see that our words aren't as effective as our prayers, but we need to stay as far away from gossip criticizing and judging as we possibly can. It is not to be anywhere found in us as the born-again believer. So, why are we at war with one another? We shouldn't be. We all belong to the same family. We serve the same Savior. We are indwelt with the same Spirit, and yet... We fight with one another, much like a family fights, right? We fight with one another. So why does this happen? James answers the question by explaining the second war that's going on with ourselves, not just with other people, but it's with us. The second war is internal. It's with ourselves. Verse 1b says, to, to, uh, 1b to 3 says, Do they not come from your desires, speaking of us, for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. James saying, our, it's us. Our heart is wrong. It is wicked. It is deceitful. Who can know it? I mean, it, we don't even know our own heart, do we? At times until the Lord may allow it to be revealed. And it is not pretty at times. It is ugly. The problem is us. It is from within. The battle is, is inside of us. And it often makes its ugly way out. It's the battle of the heart and mind. It's envy and strife and glory and pride and all of those things that are not glorifying to God. James told us last week in James 3, verses 13 to 14, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. James shares that this type of wisdom is not from above, but it really is from where? Below. (laughs) Yikes. Yikes. That's not good. We must be careful not to fall into bitterness and envy and self-seeking, which we can easily do. If it wasn't easy for us to do, it wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be addressed to the church of which we are. 
because it is easy for us to do. Therefore, we must always check our motives in the mirror of God's word. We must look in the mirror. We must look into God's word. Check our heart. Ask him, as David said, search my heart, O God, and know what is in there. You um, reveal it to me, God. Show me. Allow the word of God to be a mirror to our heart where we see Jesus. And our desire, isn't it, that we see Jesus, that when we look into the word, when we look into the mirror, that the reflection is, is Jesus Christ. And that's what we long for. Amen. That's what, we're, that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're rooting for. That's what we're shooting for. We are shooting to become more and more like Jesus. The root, ladies, of all selfishness is excuse me, the root of all sin is selfishness. Really, if we think about sin, underlying all sin is some sort of selfishness. And this is what must be rooted out of us. We live in the day of age of self, self, self everything. It's all about us and all about self. And it's so contrary to the word of God. Where the word of God says that we are to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, crucify ourselves, right? I mean, this is what we are to do to ourselves, but the world is completely opposite. We are to love ourselves, we are to pamper ourselves, we are to uh, magnify ourselves. Uh, and that is contrary to what the word of God says. The Lord will do it anyway, anyhow, and with whom he pleasure, pleases to. Uh, allow us to be crucified. He wants to put to death the self. And he uses lots of different instruments to accomplish it. He will work and work until he can rid us of our selfish ways and make us more and more like him. Those of us who are married know that our spouse is the perfect uh, vessel to be used in this way. Amen? I mean, they would say the same of us, right? <laughs> I mean, come on, this is true. But it's true. The Lord, I mean, how many of you got married like myself and thought, wow, this is wonderful. And then all of a sudden you begin to realize how selfish you are and how selfish they are. And wow, I mean, we're just really working on each other and molding each other into the image of Jesus Christ. And the Lord does that. He allows us to see how selfish we are that we may die to those things and become more and more like him. Selfish desires are dangerous things and they lead to wrong actions and can even lead to wrong praying as verse 3 tells us. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. The Lord is the one who searches the motives of our hearts. Think about it. He knows our thoughts before we even think them. I mean, he knows us inside and out. And he knows the motives of our hearts. I mean, how many times do we read in the scripture that the, that Jesus knew the thoughts of the disciples before, you know, they voiced them or they did and he didn't hear it. And he uh, reprimanded them for that. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows the motives deep down in our hearts. It's been well said, the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven but to get God's will done here on earth. 
We cannot get God's will done here on earth while being selfish. Jesus told his disciples that they were to, what? Take up their cross, they were to deny their flesh, and they were to follow him. Fulfilling the will of the Father on earth requires death and crucifixion to self. We are in this constant battle, aren't we, with three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are our constant enemies. And uh, we're going to talk about them a little more in a moment. But we should be seeking Jesus in this day and age more than we ever have before. No matter how old or how young you are, we should be in the word more. We should be in fellowship more. We should be in prayer more. We really need more of Jesus to combat all of the world and the flesh and the devil that is right front and center in our face. Jesus is coming soon, ladies. Um, As I said, I don't know if you've been following what's going on this past week in the media, the wars, the rumors of war, the pestilence, violence, and yes, 14 earthquakes in the last few days all around the world. Volcanoes are erupting in um, Hawaii. And um, not to mention, you know, they're, you know, in um, Syria. We were just last week standing on the Golan Heights And I found it a little odd and a little eerie. I will say probably for the first time ever, I felt uneasy in Israel on that one particular site. Lots of activity going on like I've never seen before. Lots of planes flying around like I never had seen before. And bombs going off what we could see. So I thought this probably isn't a good place for us to be. Well, they closed it and 20 missiles were fired on Thursday, Wednesday, um, there on the Golan Heights where we were standing less than a week ago. So the battle is what I'm saying is very real. I don't say that to scare you in, um, in Israel because... Um, you know, I'm, I'll share with you a little bit something the Lord revealed to me this year in Israel that um, really was um, a light bulb moment for me, and I want to share it with you. But the battle is real. The war is on, and Jesus is coming soon. But the question, the question, the big question, are you ready? Are you ready? Because I believe that his return is at hand. I mean, it is so close, so close. They, they're ready over there, you know, for, you know, what will be the tribulation period. They're ready to, to build that third temple. They're chomping at the bit. They have everything ready to go. The plans are drawn. <laughs> they show you the plans. You, you can see the plans. They've got all the articles ready to go. Everything is being set. The stage is being set for the Antichrist to rise to power. But we know, because the Word of God tells us, that first and foremost, the rapture of the church happens. And that's when all of us, in a blink of an eye, will be taken from this earth. It was so weird the other day. I don't know why I was thinking this. Um, probably in my excitement of the rapture of the church, I thought, um, of course, we love our animals, don't we? It's hard to think about, like, what will happen to your animals when the rapture of the church happens, happens you know? And, and we don't really want to go there. But I had this weird thought. I think it's kind of weird. I thought, what if, like, we, like, had tags made for our animals, and it said, like, a scripture on it, so that when people, when we're gone, and it said something like, 
you know, repent or, or, you know, we put a scripture on it. Like it's not too late. You know, you can still trust in Jesus. So I thought, wouldn't that be neat if we, cause somebody's going to find our animals, right? Anyways, is that odd? So anyways, I was thinking this whole thing through just being prepared. And I thought, what if we did that? What if we put like tags on our animals for people will find our animals? You think it's a good idea? Okay. So anyways, that may be a little kooky, but I, I was thinking, wow, some is good. We have two golden retrievers, you know, some is going to want them as an animal, right? So might as well put something on their tag that is lasting and reminds people that um, Jesus is coming back and, and um, you know, don't take the mark. What should we say on it? You be creative. <laughs> Let me know what you come up with. Nevertheless, uh, I was thinking of that the other day, but we need to be ready is my point. And are you ready? Are you ready? Jesus is coming very, very soon. You know, it just, it puts such a check in our heart, in our words, in our motives, in our actions, everything. When we live with the return of Jesus at hand on a daily basis, everything changes. Our relationships with people change. Our, um, our words change. Most, um, for me, it's probably just holding back what you really want to say and you don't say. You just pray. I, I just am very... Um, I'm thinking more so about, about um, the fact that when Jesus returns, I, I want to stand before him and every, my last words and actions, I, I want to, we have to give account for everything we've done for him. I just want it to matter. And so my exhortation to you today is, will you not be that ready that you're so at the forefront of your mind isn't what am I going to have for lunch? <laughs> it is Jesus could return any moment. Am I ready? Am I ready? Are my relationships good with people? Is there anything I've left undone? Do I need to get anything right? Are my words correct? Have I exhorted and encouraged people today or have I torn people down? I mean, really making sure that if Jesus comes back at any moment, we are ready in every respect. Amen? Which leads to our third person that we're at war with at times, which is God. The root cause of every war, internal and external, external, is rebellion against God. Sin, ladies, is lawlessness, and lawlessness is rebellion against God. How do we declare war against God? By being friends with these three enemies that we discussed um, a few moments ago. We're friends with uh, the enemies. We're friend- we war against God when we're friends with the devil the world, and our own flesh. Those are the things that not just war against us, but they're warring against God because we're used. We war against God. James names these three enemies of God that we must not hang out with. We must not give place to in our life if we want peace of God, if we want to be ready for Jesus' soon return. And as I said, those enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. James begins in verse 4 with our first enemy, which is the world. And he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A Christian gets involved 
who um, gets involved with the world does so gradually. It's not like we just hop back into the world. It is very subtle and very slow. It happens over time. It's a subtle, sneaky draw from the enemy. The world woos us and pulls us into it. And if we let it, it will draw us away from the Lord. So we resist the pull. We say no to the draw. And we do this by staying as far away from the world as we possibly can. We are, we know, because the word of God tells us that we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. In and of are two completely different words. We are in it, but we are not partaking of it. We must live in this world, but it should never have dominion over us. We must live in it, but it does not have dominion over us. James likens the friendship with the world we see here to an adulteress, one who is unfaithful to the bonds of marriage. When we choose friendship with the world over friendship with God, It's like being unfaithful to him, being unfaithful to a marriage. We are the bride of Christ, right? We are married to Jesus, and when we're friends with the world, it's like we're being unfaithful to our vows to Jesus Christ. Another enemy of God is the flesh flesh, which is the second enemy that James names in verse five. He says, or do you not think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Our flesh is that old nature, the old woman, we call her the one that we uh, buried and we want to stay buried in the grave. The one that tries to uh, come alive again from time to time or daily. She's the old woman, the person that we were before we were born again. She's that one that was jealous, that is impatient. She's the one that's unkind, the one that gossips and speaks of other people and judges other people. We have to understand here that the flesh being described in this Verse is not speaking of our flesh like the body. The body is a flesh. It's speaking of the spirit because the body in its nature is neutral. The body, is our physical body is neutral. It's what's inside of us that is not neutral. It's the spirit that lives inside of us that encapsulizes all of the old, the old woman. And, um, and is constantly warring against us. We are either of the spirit or in the spirit or in the flesh. We can't be both at the same time. You can't be in the spirit and in the flesh at the same time. You're either one or the other. We can't serve, as the Bible says, two masters, right? We can only serve one. Paul knew this, and that's why he spoke so much about the differences of the two, the spirit and the flesh. And he encouraged us in Galatians 5.16 by saying, But I say to you, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is the key. This is the answer to not fulfilling the lust of the flesh is by walking in the spirit. When we walk, we're doing what? 
Are we standing still? No, we're moving forward. We are to be moving forward in the spirit. We are to making progress and going somewhere in the spirit. We are not to be obeying the flesh, not to be carrying out its desires, but we are to be moving forward and making progress in the spirit of God. And we do that by what? It's very simple. By being in the word. By on a daily basis, by being in prayer, by being in fellowship, by feeding our spirit. And our food is the word of God. It's very elementary, isn't it? It seems so simple, but why is it so hard? Because we've got the devil. And he is warring against us on a daily basis, does not want us to feed our spirit, but would rather have us feed something else. What? The flesh. How do we feed the flesh? It's bodily appetites by partaking of the things in the world. We need to stay away from those things. We need to stay away from, if we want to walk, as Paul said, in the spirit, make progress, move forward, we have to say no to the flesh, no to the world, and yes to the spirit. Yes to the things of God, and that is how we make progress. That's how we win daily, right? That's the war we win against flesh and spirit is won by the word of God. It's one by cultivating a daily devotional life, by feeding your spirit more than your flesh. I think it was Greg Laurie said, and I've quoted it for many, many years, the one you feed the most will win every day. If you feed your spirit more than your flesh, which one's going to win? The spirit. If you feed your flesh more than spirit, which is going to win? The flesh. It's really very simple. Whatever you feed the most will win on a daily basis. We are to crucify the flesh, put it to death on a daily basis. Paul shares, and I love this, very vulnerably in Romans 7, verses 18 through 23, he shares about his battle with the flesh. And I'm so glad it's in the scripture. Right here, he says, For I know in me, and he says that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Here's the great battle right here the flesh and the spirit, and Paul brings it to our attention. I mean, I'm, if, if the great apostle Paul struggled with this, then I know that I'm going to struggle with it as well. But I can do what the apostle Paul did, and I can recognize it as a battle, and I can fight it with the tools that the Lord has given me to fight it. He has given me the sword, so I take it out. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. He has given me the full armor of God, so I put it on. He has given me the name of Jesus Christ and the power of prayer. Those are our weapons. That is what we need to go to battle with. Amen? We have to make sure that we have all that on because we will not make it 
If we leave our sword behind, we're not going to make it. If we take the armor off, nope. If we leave our powerful weapon of prayer behind, nope. If we do not speak power in the name of Jesus Christ, we will not have victory in this day and age. We have to use what the Lord has given us. The battle that we face is great. We are assured in Scripture that the battle, praise God, is not ours to fight. I mean, we have to fight it here on earth, but it has been won, and we are assured victory. Amen? Every time. We have it. We just need to take it. We need to take the victory that's been given to us. We are promised victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're even promised victory over our mind. When we take every single thought captive under the name of Jesus Christ. So our third enemy is the devil. We have the world, the flesh, and here is the devil. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is Satan's playground. He loves pride. That is how he fell from heaven because he was prideful and it is one of his chief weapons against us as believers. We are in this daily war against pride and it doesn't matter who you are, it can come up and sometimes we recognize it and guess what? Sometimes we do not recognize it. We can even justify pride, can't we? Jesus wants us to be humble Satan wants us to be prideful. Jesus wants us to depend upon him. Satan wants us to depend upon ourselves. The devil inflates our ego and encourages us to do it all ourselves. You can do it, right? I mean, isn't that what we hear in the world? You can do anything. You just put your mind to it or the worst one. Listen to your heart. (laughs) Don't listen to your heart. (laughs) Listen to him. Oh my goodness. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it is awful. We are not to do that. We are to do whatever the world says to do. Let's do the opposite, right? That's what we are to do. In spite of Jesus's warnings to Peter, he fell right into the devil's trap, didn't he? First taking matters into his own hands, little impulsive Peter, you know, chopping off Malchus's ear there in the garden. And then he continued down that slippery slope until he denied Jesus three times. Praise God, he repented, you know. And the devil, he is so sneaky, though, and subtle. He knows how to lure us away. He knows how to entice us, how to trick us. Look at how he tricked Eve in the garden. He watches us. He studies us. He waits for that opportune time to take advantage of our weaknesses. Therefore, We must learn from Peter and Eve. We must stay as far away from the enemy, the tree, the temptations, the devil, the world, as possible. And stay as close to Jesus as we possibly can. Staying in the word, in prayer, in fellowship, especially as we see the day of the Lord approaching It is not time for us to be ignorant of Jesus' soon return. Our salvation is nearer today than it's ever been before. Jesus is returning for us. There is no time to be impulsive. There is no time to be proud. There is no time to be questioning the Lord. We have nothing to be proud of. If it were not for Jesus Christ's death on the cross, we would be doomed for destruction. 
We are forever indebted to him. In us, we know, dwells no good thing, and the Lord knows that. That's why he had to die for us, to redeem us, and to give us something good. These three enemies try very hard to draw us away from Jesus. They fight for our attention, and they wage war daily in our lives. Half of the battle, I believe, is recognizing the war, isn't it? I mean, how many times have we been through something very difficult and then we're out of it and we go, oh, wow, that was warfare. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, we don't recognize it while we're in it. Let's be those that are spiritually discerning and we recognize what is not the Lord then. Because guess what? Then we know how to fight it, don't we? We take out our sword. Oh, yes, I need to get in the word of God. We take out our weapons of prayer, the name of Jesus. And, um, and we wage the war. We put on our armor. So let's be those gals who are discerning of the tactics of the enemy in the world that wages against us. How can we be friends of God and the enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil? James does not stop here. Praise God. Just think if he left us there, we'd be like, okay, you have your sword drawn. You're like, I'm ready. No, it's so good that he goes on. Praise God that he goes on and he continues to share with us the solution to this great dilemma, the remedy to this problem by giving us four instructions to follow as if we want peace instead of war in our lives. The first two are found in verse seven. He says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To submit means to yield to the right of way. We are to yield to God. We are to give him the best of us, the first of us daily. We are to meet with him first. We are to be, um, what I like to say, um, you know, he's the first one that I meet. The first pe- person that I see in the morning is Jesus. The first person that I talk to should be him for all of us. I remember Kay Smith used to say, before her feet hit the ground, she met with the Lord. And I like that. Before the coffee, you know, before brushing the teeth, before it just like, Lord, just make a connection. Plug in to him before you let your feet hit the ground. Because then, if we do that, we will be able to do the next thing. Resist the devil. Meaning to remain strong against. To endure. To keep out. I like that. We'll keep him out. If we first connect with the Lord, yielding to him, we will be able to keep the devil out. And we will be able to remain steadfast in our day till the end. Seems easy enough, right? Wrong. <laughs> Oftentimes, as I said, we do not recognize the, the devil's temptations uh, until it's too late. Therefore, how do we get to the place of easily recognizing what is not of God? How are we proactive in our walk so that we see the world, the flesh, and the devil, and, and, and we're not trapped into its vices? It starts with what I said, the first instruction, submitting. If we are submitting on a daily basis... Think of that word for a moment and what it means to you. The definition means to yield. If you are yielding first and foremost to the Lord and to his word, you are obeying him, you are obeying his voice, listening to him, then we will have no problem 
resisting the devil and running away from him. But if we are flirting with the world, dancing around its perimeters like Peter did, we will have a very difficult time resisting the devil when we need to. So Paul cautioned the Ephesian church, and he said, do not give place to the devil, knowing that Satan only needs a stronghold in our life, excuse me, a foothold in our life to become a stronghold. He only needs a little crack to open that door wide. He only needs a foothold then to make a stronghold in our life. We are not to flirt with the world or the devil. We are to stay as far away from the perimeter. We are to stay in the interior. We are to stay away from it. And whatever that looks like to you, uh, I would encourage you to be uh, very intentional in your pursuit to stay away from the world. Do not receive from the world. Do not... um, Give place to the world in your life, whether that mean what you bring into your home, what you bring across the airways, what comes into your car, what, I mean, whatever it means, whatever, whatever books, whatever movies, whatever people, wherever you go, stay as far away from that as possible because, again, the enemy does not need a lot. He just needs a little bit. And then over time, and he's patient, he'll wait for it. It will give way to a stronghold in our lives. After we submit to God, resist the devil, it's important that we go to the Lord. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. One of the fastest ways to draw near to God is to confess your sins. Go to the Lord. Ask the Lord, Lord, reveal, is there any wicked way in me? Is there anything? Lord, purify me. Cleanse me, Lord. Confess your sins. Sin is a brick wall that will separate you from the Lord. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 1.15, it says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, he says, I hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers. I'm not listening. And then Proverbs 28, 9, if anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. God hears everything, but he cannot answer our prayer if we are living in sin. If we are in sin, he can. It's like, it's like hitting a brick wall and, and they're unanswered. But if we confess our sins and ask God to cleanse us and purify us, immediately he restores us into fellowship with him. The double-minded person, on the other hand, cannot ever be close to God. God will not share us with anyone else. We are to serve him solely and completely. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us then in return. Uh, And we are then being humbled, which is our fourth and final instruction found in verse 10, saying, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. How beautiful is that? If we come to the Lord, if we confess our sin in humility, the Lord's the one who lifts us up. He picks us up. Humility is the opposite of pride. God resists the proud, but he gives, we're told, grace to the humble. We want to be 
humble, don't we? To remain humble, we must remain close to the Lord. For the closer to the Lord we are, the more we become like him. We must submit to him, draw near to him. And then the promise is that he, in return, will draw near to us. But there's another problem. We can be sitting on the outside and we can be standing on the inside. It's possible, isn't it, to submit on the outside, but on the inside, we're not submitting to the Lord. It's possible that they have the appearance even of submission and yet be prideful. We know that God hates pride and he always, always will deal with it in our lives. Why? Because he loves us and his desire is to draw us unto him. Some people, though, treat sin very lightly. And this makes me very frustrated when I see this. They may even laugh at sin. But sin is nothing to be laughed at. It is very serious. And because God loves us so much, he will chasten those that he loves. He will correct us. And don't you love that about the Lord? I mean, which of us hasn't been lovingly corrected by Jesus before? One of the marks of true humility uh, we find in Psalm 51, 17 is a broken and contrite spirit or heart. If we obey these instructions by submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, and humbling ourselves, the war, we're promised, will cease. The war will cease. Are you at war today with yourself, with someone else, maybe, with God? Are you battling the flesh, the world, or the devil? There is a simple solution that can be accomplished in just moments. And, as I said, will cause the war to cease if we simply turn from our sin and turn to God. Confessing our sins is that simple, quick solution. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to confess our sins, especially one to another? Isn't it? It's difficult. What gets in the way of confession? Anybody know? Starts with a P. Pride. (laughs) Yes, pride. Pride always gets in the way of confession, of humility. When we confess our sins, whether it be to the Lord or one to another, that is proof that we are humbled or humble, and that the war is ceased, ceasing, has ceased. The war has ceased. Confess your sins. Humble yourself. The Lord's desire for us is good. His plan for us is great, and his purpose for us is glorious. It's glorious. The Lord desires that we be made one with him and that we remain in his perfect will for our lives, which is where we conclude today. Started with war, quickly ending with the will of God for our lives. We see in the remainder of this chapter that there are three types of people. Those that ignore God's will for their lives. Those that disobey God's will for their life. And, of course, praise God, those that obey. And we want to be the latter, right? Those that obey God's will. Verse 13 says, Come now. 
you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? Is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The Lord's will is more than a spoken word at the end of our prayer. Often we'll say, oh, the Lord's will be done. Really, it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? Because we can say those words and yet really not mean it. Paul did not consider the will of God a chain that shackled him for so many times he was in prison, but really it was a key that opened the doors for him. We can look at the will of the Lord in one of two ways, ladies. It can be the glass half full or it can be the glass half empty, right? We can see the will of God as opportunities, as divine appointments, or we can see them as interruptions, delays, and defeats. The safest place in the world for each of us to be is in the center of God's will for our lives. This may look very different for each of us. I think about the many difficulties and challenges and heartaches and chastenings that I personally have received in my own life, and yet I was in the center of God's will for my life. We look into scripture and we see many examples of men and women who love the Lord and went through difficult times and trials and yet they were in the center of God's will for their lives. Daniel, center of God's will when he was thrown in the lion's den. Joseph, center of God's will when he was thrown in the pit by his own brothers, thrown into the prison when he was wrongfully accused. Disciples, they were in the will of God when they were in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The apostles, they were in the center of the storm when they suffered persecution. And Jesus, he was in the center of God's will when he was crucified on the cross. Have you ever thought about that? The center of God's will for your life is exactly where you are. God uses it all. The good, the bad, the ugly, the hard, the devastating, all of it. God uses. For what the enemy has intended for evil, God has used for good. I told you I was going to share with you something that the Lord revealed to me in Israel this year, and um, it really has made such a huge impact on me, and I wanted to share it with you. Our guide this year shared with us something I've never heard before, and he shared with us that, you know, had Israel not given up the Temple Mount You know, we think of the fact that the Dome of the Rock belonging to the Muslims, uh, that gold dome that sits on the Holy of Holies where the temple once was. We think of that as astonishing, honestly. Like, how could they, just because they wanted peace with the Muslims, they gave them the Temple Mount? Why did they do that? And, of course, you're like me going, how are they going to rebuild the temple? Where are they going to rebuild that temple from? Where are they going to, you know, I mean, there's no room. But our guide said something, and it just struck an amazing chord with me. And he said, you won't ever see the Muslims, any country, bomb Jerusalem ever. Because the temple, I mean, the, um, the Dome of the Rock is sitting on the Temple Mount. They would never even take a chance to accidentally bomb one of their holy sites. <gasps> Light bulb. 
Oh my goodness. That was God's divine orchestrated plan. What we think the enemy had victory, God took the victory because it is a way that he is protecting his holiest city in all the world. Amen? Now, bring it to your life. Bring it home. How many times have we thought in our own lives, this is devastating, this is awful, this is horrific, how could this happen? And yet it is God's way of working something so deep and beautiful and perfect in our lives. God's way of protecting us to do something even better, something later, something down the road that we know not of. Amen? That is what I want to leave with you today. God's ways are not our ways. He works outside of our box that we put him in almost on a daily basis. And yet God has such a bigger plan for our life. He uses all of it. The things that we would say are as good as dead. The things that we would say are devastating. God says, I have a plan. You can't see it right now. It's for later, but I have a plan. Amen. So I leave you with that amazing thought to really ponder and mull over in your life today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would have your way with all of these women here today, God, those that will watch online, those who will watch on Monday night, God, that they would no longer question your ways, God, that they would... Uh, make peace with you today, that they would no longer be at war with your ways, God. We can war with you, not understanding things that you've done in our life. Why, we ask. Lord, can we instead ask how? How are you going to use this, Lord? Give me hope in the hurting times, Lord. Help me to know that you're working outside of my box that I put you in, Lord. Would you give that hope to these ladies today, Lord? We do not want to question your ways, God. We, we want to have those light bulb moments, God. We want to be encouraged knowing that we are in your perfect will right now, even if it's hard, even if it's trying, even if it's difficult, knowing that you are protecting us, God, and you are working out your perfect plan in and through our lives. Lord, we love you and praise you, God. And whatever it is that you've brought to our memory, to our mind right now, God, to our heart, Lord, I pray that we would do business with you in this last song, that we really do business with you, that we lay it at your feet, that we would trust you, God, that you would take it out of our hands, and that we would trust that you are doing something better. We can't see it, God, but something that we cannot see, God, for faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. God, work it in us now. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.